Hi, everyone, and welcome again to Anesthesia Coffee Break. I'm Lahiru. And I'm Stan. And today we've got a few things to talk about. Um, so we're going to talk about pulse oximetry. And I think that leads on pretty well because it's such a relevant thing for everyone, even after the first part, you need to know about your pulse oximeter because otherwise, you know, a lot of our management, one of the most common things that we'll ever do is to manage hypoxemia and hypertension. And, you know, without the SATS probe, it's very, very difficult to, to actually identify any problems. Well, yeah, I mean, we listened to Bob in the earlier episodes and he was talking about the evolution of how monitoring has changed in anesthesia. And probably one of the big things that has come through is the pulse oximeter. Mm. Rather than having to look at the color of the patient, you actually you- have a number now to actually reassure you that, uh, that the patient's ventilation and perfusion is okay. It's amazing what we take for granted, isn't it? The fact that, you know, so many of our decisions are based on that number. And yeah, I guess what you're going to talk about is a lot of the, you know, the errors in measurement or the problems with the pulse oximeter. So the fact that, you know, you know, these things is so, first of all, so vital to your management of your patient. Uh, but also the fact that we, we didn't always have a pulse oximeter. Pulse oximeter. Yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. And, and look, you're right. It, at the end of the day, it is just a number and it's important to know how it works and what are the possible sources of errors so that it gives you an idea in terms of where it may go wrong and other clues that you can sort of look for that the patient is being perfused, is being oxygenated. And those are, those are the other important things. So yes, you know, whilst I said it's moved on from the days when we, you know, used to look at the color of the patient in terms of determining whether a patient has uh, low saturations, it still doesn't take it away because errors do happen. And at the end of the day, we still need to look at our patients. And I'll, and I'll just give you just a quick example before we go on to your performance tip. Uh, you know, just the other day, I was, I was in recovery and the patient came out postoperatively, unfortunately came out cold, which is my fault. So we'll put, put that one on me. And one of the things that happens when you're cold is that you get vasoconstricted. And so they were, they were kind of trying to get this uh, pulse oximeter reading in this uh, patient who's quite elderly. And it was coming out in the 80s. And I was looking at her and I looked at her and she was, she was fine during the anesthesia. And I was looking at her clinically and I was going, I've, I've seen patients with sets of eighties, which is, which is uh, not, not a, not a badge of honor, but you know, we've, I think we've both seen patients who are hypoxemic. I've never yeah. seen that. <laughs> so you, you provide, you provide, you provide preventative uh, CPR. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, let, let's just say zero is not a very nice number to see. Oh no, but, but you know, but you yeah. can see the, you know, the grayish tinge of a patient who's hypox or the blue, the gray bluish tinge of someone who's hypoxemic. And I said, this patient looks pink. And I said, "Um, it's most likely most likely caused from her being cold, her being vasoconstricted, lack of pulse style flow. Let's try another area. Um, And so we tried somewhere uh, on the ear and yeah, true enough, her sets were 99. But at that moment in time, if there wasn't that, acknowledgement or that you know that understanding of how pulse oximeters works and, and where the errors can occur you, you know you might you might be you might be thinking that oh no you know like you might actually need to intervene and start mm. um, resuscitating this patient or ventilating this patient all right so apart from my little anecdote from earlier this week we're going to start with a performance tip so so like, what's your performance tip? Yeah, so the last month has been a bit of a weird journey for me. So the first thing that happened was I realized that 
I'm editing so many videos that I'm just running out of data space. So I started trying to figure out how to store data in the most, you know, in the safest way possible. And then a week later, after I started sorting that out, my website stopped working. I started getting emails from, you know, students saying, I can't download that content from anesthesiacollective.com. I went onto the website and it was just, it was just gone. Couldn't see anything. And uh, I tried to contact my web host and didn't get an email reply back. Another day, didn't get a reply back. And this is on the background. So Stan and I both uh, started developing this website back in the day with another company and they just disappeared. And then now this company has ceased to be, you know, be communicated with me. And I had to go through a mate who recommended and finally they replied, but essentially they were hacked and lost everything. Uh, so, you know, pretty, pretty disastrous result for a lot of time and effort in making this website. So that was, so my performance tip is really having data security back and backup. This is such an important thing in life in general, but also for your first part exam. Imagine all your notes these days, most people probably have it on Dropbox or something, but you need something that's just a really reliable form of backup because, you know, all of that data, all of that important information is going to be so important for you throughout, you know, the year of your study and to lose it all to, you know, a, a crash or, or any kind of hacking event or anything like that is just, is just a disaster for, for that, that will set you back a long way. Mm. And so, um, yeah, it's something on this journey, something I learned while I'm looking up ways of solving this problem was that in the data world, unless it's stored in three different positions in three different places, it doesn't exist. So that means that not only do you have to have it stored maybe locally, but imagine that if, if you've got two backups locally, that's really good. But if you have some, you know, if, if someone steals it, you, you know, your house is robbed or there's a fire or a flood, then, you know, that that's going to go no matter how many backups you have at home, that's still not safe. You need to have it at two points. So having something in the cloud as well as in an external drive. Um, and the other thing that I learned from this is that 100% of hard drives will fail in your lifetime. And that's, that's a pretty bad statistic. And I think a lot of us have experienced that where we might have back in the day, something stored on a CD, the CD gets scratched or the external hard drives, even though they're really solid state or, you know, or especially if they've got just the normal disc spinning that can also easily break or something can happen. You can drop it. And, you know, in time, all of these drives will fail. So I finally addressed this solution and I finally got this, uh, ridiculous NAS drive that, you know, backs up itself overnight. And it also goes to cloud storage. And I've got finally got a password generator so that everything is incredibly secure. I hope <laughs> So that, that's my performance tip. Make sure you back up your data and make sure, you know, your passwords are secure because it's an absolute nightmare. I'm trying to fix it. And luckily everything I've done is recoverable. You know, it's just knowledge in my brain. I can reproduce and I've managed to find a really old website version of it. But yeah, you just don't want this to happen, especially in something far more important than just a, a, a little hobby. You know, if you, your first part is your career and you don't want this to happen. That's really important. And the idea of backing up is really a philosophy of how you should approach this exam mm. in terms of making sure that you have those other aspects of your life are planned for mm. and in terms of things that are going to go wrong try to try to minimize and mitigate those circumstances because the last thing you need during an exam is or trying to or, you know in studying for this exam is having this unnecessary stress <laughs> of trying to figure out where am i going to recover this the, the data from yeah. so um it's really really good advice i think for everyone out there to make sure that 
whatever they have uh, sort of stored during this time when they're sort of preparing for their study, make sure that you actually have a backup. Yeah. And, and and probably the easiest way, like, you know, I've also obviously got a lot of data. So I've used quite a fancy solution with, you know, terabytes and terabytes of space. But I think the easiest thing, if you, if you knew nothing about data, literally just get a Dropbox account, sync it to your laptop. So you've got it as a Dropbox with all your folders and that automatically syncs. It's available on the cloud as well as your laptop, but that's only two points. And potentially just getting, just buying a solid external hard drive, you know, two terabytes or whatever it is, mm. you can get some really good solid state ones for a reasonable price now, um, as well as the cheaper HDDs. And then just every now and again, just back up your Dropbox, your Dropbox with all your files onto that. So that's three points that's on your laptop, in the cloud and on external drive. So it's very, very unlikely that you'd lose all three. And that's probably the simplest and cheapest solution to having three points of backup for all your very important first part files, as well as your other documents. Did you manage to get all your data back or what happened no. in that case? Yes. So I had to go to the original website developer who just disappeared, but luckily they're, they're, they're actually there, but they're doing something completely different now. Oh, right. What, are, they, what are they doing now? They're, they're not called Bebel anymore? Are they called Bebel? Are they called Bebel? But... Yeah, I don't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a plug. So it's a plug, yeah, it's a plug out as opposed you... to a plug in. Yeah. You know, it's funny when they're into the, into what, when they're helping us, they're obviously, yeah, you know, we're website developers, but literally they've just transitioned to something completely different, left all of us behind. Right. You know, left the website development space or even, you know, helping us with things like updating the security certificates. And uh, they've just gone on to a more social media style development. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can't, you just can't trust other people to take care of your stuff for you. You know, they didn't have a backup, but we met, I managed to point the website uh, at an, an old IP address and it just appeared as an older version. Right. Uh, so really lucky that that was still present. I don't, I don't really understand it. A bit annoyed by this whole process, but you know, it's a very, uh, it was a cheap mistake overall from the mistakes that could have happened. And now, you know, I'm sorting it out. Yeah. Managed it. Yeah. And you've, you're moving on. So yes, move on. moving forward. Yeah. Things happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So okay. let's get into this uh, question. And this was a, question i think from 2016 and i think it's been asked previously in the past which is uh explain the reasons why a pulse oximeter may give incorrect readings mm -hmm. so for this question here the, the basic principles of a pulse oximetry is that it measures uh hemoglobin o2 saturations using the beer lambert law so in its simplicity the beer law states that the amount of absorbance of a transmitted light is dependent on the concentration. And the Lambert law states that the amount of absorption of a transmitted light is dependent on the length it travels. So that's where the Beer-Lambert law comes from. And there's a formula that you'll see uh, in textbooks, which combines those two sort of concepts together as well as what's called the extinction coefficient of the solute. Mm. Now, what is, uh, I think, important to make the distinction is that pulse oximetry measures functional saturation because the other one that you'll also see is called fractional saturations. And this is where it, there, there is a bit of confusion. So fractional saturations is what co-oximetry measures using a sample from an arterial blood gas. 
and cooximetry is able to measure all the different hemoglobin species that um, may possibly exist in blood, so sulfur Hb as well. Okay, whereas aposoximetry, what it does is it measures the difference between oxygenated hemoglobin over total hemoglobin, which is both oxy and deoxyhemoglobin. And the way it does that, it uses two wavelengths. So very easily, it uses the red wavelength at 660 and the infrared wavelength at 940 to measure oxy and deoxyhemoglobin. Now, you're going to ask, why, why do they choose 660 and 940? Well, if you actually look at the actual diagram itself, so at 660, what you see is that deoxyhemoglobin has more absorption of red light than oxyhemoglobin, which makes sense because if you think about it, deoxyhemoglobin absorbs red and shows itself as blue, whereas oxyhemoglobin is able to reflect red light. And that's why you see that pinkish color. Now, on the flip side, on the infrared spectrum, you actually have it the other way around. So oxyhemoglobin is actually able to absorb a lot more infrared than deoxyhemoglobin. And when you see that, it's, it's because of the differences between the two. Because the way that it's calculated in a pulse oximeter, it, it uses a ratio. So it's looking at the ratio of absorbance between the, uh, in, between the oxy and deoxyhemoglobin at, at the red spectrum versus the oxy and deoxy at the infrared spectrum. So the ratio, I mean, that's, that's calculated as like um, the pulsatile blood Correct, over. correct. Yep. Yeah, correct. So what you see is this R ratio, which is calculated as, you, you see it in, um, you see it in different texts where they all, where you see this formula where you'll, you see the AC and DC. So the AC, which is alternating current is pulsatile flow. And the DC is direct current, which is non-pulsatile flow. So what is, what the inference is, is that pulsatile flow contains oxygenated hemoglobin, whereas, de whereas the non-pulsatile flow contains deoxy or reduced hemoglobin, okay? And then by knowing what the pulsatile and non-pulsatile flows are, they're able to make inferences in terms of what the oxy and deoxy hemoglobin is, look at the ratios between the two at, uh, at red, and then also look at the ratios of them at infrared. And then they look at the, and then they, so it's actually the ratios, there's two ratios and they, and they compare them. So there's the mm -hmm. ratio, the ratio of the ratio. Okay. Exactly. And, uh, and specifically, so AC absorbs and absorbance at 660 over DC absorbance at 660 is then divided by, so is then ratioed AC absorbance at 940 over DC absorbance at 940. So you're just doing ratios of ratios. Correct. So, so there's actually, yeah, the ratio, another ratio and compelling those ratios together. And that actually gives you an R value. So you, you'll see some R values, uh, I think in textbooks where a, 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 an R of one is representative of a saturation of 85%. Okay. And then the lower your R value is, the higher saturations are. And the higher your R value is, the lower your saturations are. Now, where do incorrect readings come from? So incorrect readings 
the way the way that uh, if you actually read the examiner's report, the way that they want you to classify it is that it can come from limitations of the central processor, it can come from the errors at the level of the probe, and then thirdly from patient factors. So, with regard to those three ways that they've categorized it, there's many different ways that you can think about think about it because in terms of you know the limitations of the central processor what you can talk about which can also include patient factors as well but you can also talk we can talk about the different hemoglobin species that are out there and how different hemoglobin species can produce erroneous pulse oximeter readings so for example carboxyhemoglobin carboxyhemoglobin which we're talking about um, previously in the your, your perfusion diffusion talk so carboxyhemoglobin actually shares very similar absorptions to oxyhemoglobin at 660. So if you look at the graph of the absorbance, what you see is that at 660, carboxy and oxyhemoglobin are almost identical. And that's the reason why that when you look at the pulse oximeter, it tends to trend towards the high 90s for when, when you've got carboxyhemoglobin poisoning or carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, now, conversely, when you look at methemoglobin, so with methemoglobin, it actually shares very similar absorptions again with deoxyhemoglobin at 660. And that is why in the presence of methemoglobin, you tend to get lower saturations and your R value, which, all, which is that ratio tends to approach one. So you tend to get saturations of 85%. So look, the, the clue is when you're thinking about how to draw this diagram, because you will be asked to draw the diagram in the exam, either in the viva or in the written, the way to think about it is you need to have the two numbers in your head, 660, 940. At 660, know that oxyhemoglobin is red, okay? So if it's red, it's gonna reflect red. And deoxyhemoglobin is often blue. So it's gonna absorb the red light. In other words, your absorbance of deoxy is gonna be higher than oxyhemoglobin. Now at 940, it's the reverse because remember they're looking at the, the difference between the, the two sort of ratios. So at infrared, oxyhemoglobin is gonna have higher absorbance and deoxyhemoglobin is gonna have lower absorbance, all right? And then when you get asked to draw the carboxy and methemoglobin, the starting point is know that carboxyhemoglobin shares the same absorbance as oxyhemoglobin. So it's gonna be, it's gonna cross over 660, whereas methemoglobin, shares the same absorbance as deoxyhemoglobin. So, so those two are gonna to cross together. So All right. maybe you, we'll probably put a link to a, the appropriate diagram in the story notes. Yeah, and the, the diagrams are readily available uh, in, in, um, in most, in, in fact, in all textbooks. And I think it's actually quite good if you can sort of think about conceptually in your head, the reasons why as I've, I've explained, um, where they sit, it'll actually, it'll actually help you draw the diagrams because I know from asking trainees this question, they get very confused about how to draw this diagram. But if you actually understand the, 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 the concepts about the different absorbents, I think it'll actually give you a good, sort of good starting point in terms of where, where each one goes. And, and when I think about this clinically, you know, when this, this is so relevant, you know, depending on which hospital you work at and the patient population that comes in. So you have a trauma patient with inhalational injuries or burns injuries. You may be falsely reassured by the fact that their sets are fine, but you know, you may have missed with the carboxy. Yeah. yeah you may Absolutely. have missed the point that 
they've actually got a lot of carbon monoxide from smoke inhalation injury, or maybe it was a suicide attempt or something like that. And you just have to treat with oxygen, uh, regardless of what that oxygen level is. And likewise, you might have someone who's, uh, you know, methemoglobinemia, say you've got someone, I think it is it SNP that creates uh, increased yep. hemoglobin. That's right. Uh, yeah, you may get a trend down to 85%. And you really have to be aware of that, that the, these are the you know, situations that it, that it occurs. Um, but yeah, so H, fetal hemoglobin and HBS not doesn't really affect the pulse. No, so not 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 as um, not clinically relevant, and and because of that, they they do mention it in textbooks, but um, because they don't have um, that much of an effect, I, I tend to leave them out in in this answer because this answer is really talking about um, why you know a POSCA symptom may may sort of give uh, incorrect readings hmm. now. Yeah. Now, now, the other thing with uh, with the pulse oximeter is that know that it's always it's calibrated for patients between seventy to one hundred percent, right? So, in other words, your accuracy is li really limited within that range, mm -hmm. and the reasons for that are, should be obvious in terms of the when you think about the relevance of the HBO two dissociation curve. So. When, when you're reaching that steep part of the curve, any sort of small changes in your partial pressure of oxygen will produce very large changes in your um, saturations. And then the other thing to also note is that in patients with pathological conditions who often will have lower saturations, they've got variable HPO2 dissociation curves because we know that it shifts left or right depending on you know, your pH, your temperature, your CO2, and the presence of 2,3-TPG. Mm. So, that, so that's why the accuracy of the pulse oximeter is really limited to saturations above 70%. Once you head below then, then it gets, it gets very, very inaccurate. And I, and I think you've seen that yourself, haven't you? When, yeah. When sets drop. Yeah. It just drops really rapidly. It dropped very rapidly. Yeah. And it's, it's almost, it's quite, uh, it's quite, and, and I say heartbreaking because if, and I'm sure with yourself, when you've done so many anesthetics, your heart is in tune with that, with that high pitch sound of 99%. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Anything that goes beep, 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 beep. Oh, like even even then. Yeah. It's inversely. It's the 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 <laughs> the lower the frequency, the higher my heart rate. Yep. <laughs> and it's it's just it's just this Pavlovian response. Uh, isn't it? Yeah. And it's funny that you know you 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 get attuned to these things, not just the the pitch of that of that um saturation trace, but also the beat of it. So you know you get a small rise or or a slowing down of it, and you're like, oh, what's what's just happened? Yeah. I, I recently did a squint repair, and you know I just pre-treated with atropine. <laughs> I, didn't, I really didn't want to see a drop and drop, um, drop in the heart rate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, traction on that on that muscle can create um yeah some severe bradycardias, even asystole, mm. uh, and even you know with it's what was it? I gave three hundred, yeah, just three hundred of atropine. Heart rate was pretty much eighty-five for most of the case, and traction on the muscle made it go down to seventy-five, pretty much. Yeah. Instantly. So yeah. And there you go. There you go. Um, and so, and so, with um, you know, when when you also think about the other errors of uh, post symmetry mm. where it can occur, so know that it's got LEDs uh, at at the probe level. So any sort of damage to the LEDs can, can affect uh, the level, can affect sort of the O2 saturation. And you'll see it sometimes after, you know, a new case has started where the proximity was working in the previous case mm. and, and, you know, something has happened in between the case, either, you know, incorrect cleaning or someone's damaged the, um, the LED. Mm. When you try to pop it onto the finger, it just doesn't work anymore. Yep. <laughs> yeah. 
I've, I've seen that sort of multiple times. Yeah, that's right. It's quite, and it's quite, it's quite painful. When, and again, you rely on this so much that any, any kind of breakage, I, I remember there was a period of time where the SATS probes seemed to just not be working and have to go and get a different, you know, different line, different SATS probe quite frequently. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It can be very frustrating. That's right. Um, now, the, the other thing that uh, is very, very common in anesthesia is the interference that you get. So the way that I've sort of summarized it is that, that there's motion artifact. So patients uh, moving or shaking and there's optical interference. There's also electrical and infrared uh, interference as well. Mm-hmm. Now, th- there's ways that you can mitigate those types of interferences. So one is that um, people often wrap up the, um, the SATS probe with a covering to sort of minimize the, the optical or, or infrared uh, interference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things like electrical interference, uh, just move it away from, from the, um, uh, the electrical interference. And, and the most common one is going to be diathermy. Mm-hmm. So you, you'll see that diathermy close to the oximeter, you, you'll see high frequency waves and it'll disrupt the, uh, the saturations reading. I've got to see that. I've got to say that that's been very infrequent for me. Uh, I haven't seen too much interference. Maybe the new models are a lot better at a... Well, I think the filters are quite good. Yeah. Um, I, I do see it sometimes, especially if you decide to use, you know, the the ear or the, uh, oh, sorry, the the ear or the ear probe, and they're sort of operating sort of close to where where the ear probes are. What you see is sort of the high frequency, and then you actually see the the sats. Um, it just, it won't give a reading at all. In other words, it will just, it'll know that there's a lot of sort of interference there. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, now and so what, what what do you do about the nail polish issue and often yeah. often advice to patients remove nail polish before you know coming to procedure but sometimes you get these massive fake nails what, what do you what do you do about that so okay ideally you should get and these are these are listed under patient factors that are that are listed under patient factors right. in terms of either dark nail polish or coverings and and they and they're often what I mean, the ideal thing is that they haven't have them removed prior to coming in, or at least have a finger off. But understanding also that these are quite expensive. Oh, I, well, I, I think I think they're quite expensive. I I can't, I can't confirm that, but I know that uh, you know people obviously do spend a bit of money on them. So look, I, I'm I'm a bit more practical in my approach, and if if they're not too long, what I'll do is instead of popping the probe on you know, on, on top of the fingernail, I'll pop it on the side of the finger yeah. and, and it works just as well. Yeah. And, You're literally just rotating it 90 degrees. So now it's yeah. on the pulp instead that's, of over the nail bed. It's on the pulp. That's right. It's on the tra- uh, transverse instead of, uh, um, yeah, instead of, instead of the nail bed. Yeah, I've correct. also just moved it up. So I'll just put it across the, you know, the proximal phalanx of the thumb. Yeah. So, and we'll talk about that and, and yeah. what, and what the possible errors of doing that are. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, so yes, that, that is an option as long, as long as the finger is not too large. Mm. All right. Cause if the finger is too large, you're not, you're not going to get, you're going to get what's called um, the, an, an optical shunt or, or you see what this called penumbra effect where it's not completely over the finger and, and they produce what's yeah. Um, mm. You'll see in textbooks, I think one textbook calls it the, the penumbra effect and then another textbook will call it the optical shunt. Mm. All right. And now, in this day and age where we have ear probes, I just just use a ear probe. Mm. So look, I'm I'm not too I'm not too fast too much about nail nail coverings and nail polish. I mean, h- how about yourself? Do you routinely ask patients to remove nail coverings and nail polish? No, not at all. I mean, that's never been our place. So we're not really um in that you know presence of you know talking to a patient before and 
telling them, by the way, remove your nail polish plus there's an easy solution. Just put it transversely across the finger rather than uh, across the nail bed. Yeah, exactly. Now, now the other thing that uh, you often see quite commonly, especially in breast surgeries when they use dyes. So oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Methylene blue. And you'll see it in recovery as well. I, I you know, I walk past, I always walk past a patient after they come come out of breast surgery and where they've been exposed to methylene blue. And I go, oh, that patient's looking pretty hypoxemic. But it's not because they, you know, they're looking bluish, grayish. It's because yeah. of the dye. Yeah. Um, and that in itself can actually produce incorrect uh, saturation readings. It's, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? And, uh, you know, every now and again, say a gynae surgeon wants to check uh, whether the ureters are intact. And so they ask you to give methylene blue. And so, you, you know, you give that. And, and what they're looking for is to see the blue dye out of the ureters, um, just as they're checking with the uh, cystoscopy after the operation. And it, it's really interesting because you go, hey, hey, uh, you'll notice something happening now. And, you know, you might tell your registrar or your nurse and the stats just suddenly drop very acutely because it's intravenous. Yes. And uh, it, it makes everyone kind of stand up a bit if they haven't seen it before. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you're wondering because the thing is they're associated with uh, you know, a rate of anaphylaxis. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you're thinking, oh, oh my, you know, has this patient developed, uh, you know, sudden drop in cardiac output and loss of perfusion. And that's why they've, they've dropped their saturations. Right. And yeah. it's interesting because, you know, for so long, we've, you know, I've, I've, you know, in the hospital, they asked for methylene blue, but then one of my surgeons just starts giving them Barocca or vitamin B complex in the morning of the operation. Uh, and so once you, because because the, the urine gets very very quickly very bright yellow. Yes, that I find is a far safer alternative to giving a potentially anaphylactic drug. So just right. yeah, just giving Barocca or vitamin B complex in the morning with a small sip of water, then allows them to check the ureters patency through cystoscopy. Because it's very clear when you're getting passage of uh, yeah Barocca urine. <laughs> through the urine. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Now, now, the other thing that's interesting, and, and maybe you can sort of relate your experiences with this as well, is that, you know, after the use of dye, it's transient. Like, I, I don't, I never see it persist no, never. Uh, throughout the case, right? So even though I, I see patients have that bluish, bluish or greenish color tinge on their, on their face, it never seems to be a permanent effect um, with their post feminine. So yeah, I'll, I'll see it transiently drop, but then after a period of time, it comes back up again. But when, when you see patients, they're looking, all you know, <laughs> they're, they're looking pretty blue or they're looking pretty green. I mean, you, you've, is that sort of similar to what you, what you've experienced as well? I mean, I've not seen the patients looking that. And look, I've got to say, I haven't seen the patients, um, uh, except for intravenous methylene blue given, mm, uh, mm. which is a transient, the transient issue. I, I, I haven't, I haven't seen the patient looking blue or mm. any, any odd color afterwards. No. Yeah. Um, and so, look, the, the last sort of patient factor is that the pulse oximeter does rely on pulse style flow. And as I sort of mentioned before, and sort of we were sort of discussing before, pulse style flow is representative of oxyhemoglobin. Mm. So anything that disrupts the rhythm of the pulse style flow is going to cause erroneous readings. So these can include um, irregular rhythms or dysrhythmias, uh, arteriovenous pulsations, mm. maybe an AV fistula, can lead to pressure waveforms that confuse it. And also um, the way that uh, your intraaortic balloon pump is, is being programmed. So there are multiple ways to program an intraaortic balloon pump far, look, far beyond my level of understanding. And, you know, maybe one day we'll have someone who's an ICU consultant who's very familiar with mm. uh, intraaortic balloon pumps come in and have a chat to us about it. But from, from my sort of uh, 
basic knowledge of that, that there are multiple waveforms that you can sort of create with um, these balloon pumps, depending on the patient's pathology. And because of that, these can confuse the pulse oximeter algorithm. Ah, I see. Now, did you have anything else that you had that, um, that wasn't, uh, that, that I might, uh, that I might've missed out? And so I, th- I think you've covered it really well. So, I mean, in summary, I think you've gone through a lot of the patient factors that could cause a problem, talking about the factor that the level of the probe itself, and then factors at the central processor and just going through those systematically. I really like that. Um, no, so I think, I think that was, that pretty much covers it. Well, what I was going to say is I remember just having a case where there's a patient with potentially difficult airways, like a crest syndrome patient, small mouth opening, but also because of the syndrome or this, you know, the connective tissue type problem that they had, they, we could not get a SATS trace anywhere. Mm. And, and that was interesting because I've got a potentially difficult airway and a patient who can't get a SAS trace on. But my consultant at the time was just absolutely fine. They said, yeah, yeah, don't worry. It'll, it'll sort itself out. Gave the propofol. And then just the propofol vasodilation sorted out the SATS issue. There you go. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't a difficult airway. Everything was good. Um, but I thought, oh, that was uh, that was interesting to know. Uh, you know that was my N equals one for you know, very you know, small, small vessels or yeah. very little pulsation detected by the probe, but you know, I'm happy that anesthesia really promotes good um, blood flow to your peripheries. And would you, would you do that again? Like, would you be comfortable doing a case without a pulse oximeter? I mean, because it came on straight away, yeah. it, it was fine, but yeah, I mean, what would I do if I, if this was, you know, say, say you actually have no pulse oximeters in this mm. institution, you know, maybe you're in, in third well, world. Well, let's say, yeah, let's say for some reason. And I, I've had, I mean, I've had scenarios where it's been difficult to get mm. um, oxygen saturations. Mm. Yeah. Like, like how would you manage? And I know this is probably like a part two question, yeah. but uh, it's interesting. Just, yeah. Just out of interest. Yeah. What, like, how, what would you do? If it's an elective procedure, then I'd, chances are I'd, I'd have to try and find a solution. If it's a patient issue, then potentially there's no solution that I can find. So I need to crack on and make the best of what I have. So in the situation where I need to crack on, either it's a developing world issue or it's a patient issue that can't be solved. And, you know, depending on the urgency of the case, yeah, I, th- I think I'd go ahead understanding the limitations and potentially putting in an art line to get some yeah. regular, you know, saturations via the PO2 measurements through the coximetry of the gas. Um, I'm just trying to think, is there any other ways besides having a really good idea of, I mean, here's the thing, right? So if I am regularly making sure ventilation is fine, mm. that I'm giving it appropriate FiO2 and there's no problems with the compliance and, and the lungs sound good. I think mm. it could be very vigilant, regular assessment of the lungs, regular assessment of my various parameters of ventilation, my FiO2 and the occasional blood gas. I think I'd be in a safe environment. Yeah. Uh, and this comfort level would be increased if it's peripheral surgery with a well patient. And I'll be very uncomfortable if this was thoracic surgery with a patient with lung disease and yeah. everywhere else on that spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll be, I'm the, I'm the same as you. Like I'd probably be a bit more conservative with my FiO2 and mm-hmm. probably have it higher than, than usual. But uh, yeah, all, all, all sort of those other things you sort of talk about in terms of just looking at the other parameters, you know, the heart rate, the blood pressure, and I guess just going back to old school, just looking at the, the color of the skin. Yeah. Um, Actually, I did have an experience when I was working in the Northern Territory where I had a child who desaturated, had a, uh, probably a mild laryngospasm, desaturated 40%. And I'd never seen a dark-skinned person desaturate, right? And what that actually looked like. So, you know, we talk about the patient looking a bit gray or blue if they've got pale skin. 
and that's probably common to most people in mm. an Australian context. But I, you know, to see the difference in color of a person who's dark skinned, it was it was very noticeable. Mm. And so it, it probably something that for for the audience to realize that everyone looks far more gray or just doesn't look quite right, regardless of their skin color. Yes, um, and that was that was an that was an eye opening. Yeah, and, and look there, and just as to add on to that, um, people do ask whether skin color does affect postal symmetry readings, and you know there has been some studies shown that probably at lower saturations it possibly might, but it's very, been very inconclusive. But I've, in, in general, we say that uh, no, it doesn't. There's a, that that skin color has minimal effect on uh, the accuracy of postal symmetry readings. I think we probably covered most of the stuff there. So <laughs> again, thanks very much, Dan. That was a really good framework for the answer and I love the detail of this. And, you know, that's the kind of detail that hopefully you'll be able to reproduce in the in the exam, especially with the understanding of these concepts, which we hope we got through to you. Please um, share and recommend to anyone who might be interested in this, especially if they're sitting their first part exam. And we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.